<laughs> Hurry down, Zacchaeus. But I must stay in your house today. My house? I want to stay in his house. My belongings to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone, I will pay him back four times as much. Salvation has come to this house today. For this man also is a descendant of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. People complained that Jesus had gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. I mean, he's glad Jesus loves sinners. During this visit, Zacchaeus responds, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Now that was the fullest extent of the law of Moses to restore someone that you have stolen from. He was an evil man, but with a change of heart, he began to make restitution out of response from the Lord's love first generates good works. And so he was going to give half of his goods to help the poor and restore those he had stolen from through false accusation fourfold. He was an IRS agent gone bad. No doubt some of those who were complaining that Jesus was fellowshipping with sinners got the benefits of that fellowship by being blessed through his blessing the poor or by being blessed by having what had been stolen from them replaced. How many have ever been offended by God blessing someone that you thought wasn't worthy? Oh, we're all holy today, are we? (laughs) How dare he? But God's a God of love. He is a God of justice. And justice will be served ultimately, but today is a day of salvation and through the finished work of Christ on the cross, it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. If we've got enough sense to come in out of the rain, we'll allow Him to convict us of our sin through His goodness. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, and through His blessing of the wicked, it can bring about a change in their hearts, which can bless us ultimately. Abe Lincoln is credited with saying something that he didn't say, but I think there is still some truth to this statement. And that statement is, you cannot help the poor by hurting the rich. Communism has tried that, and they wound up with the new rich, and the poor still suffered. Zimbabwe tried that, and they wound up with hyperinflation. I have here in my hand piece of their currency. So they now use U.S. currency in Zimbabwe. Before it was canceled, this was their 100 trillion Zimbabwe dollars. The banks 
computers were just going crazy. Every day at 2 o'clock, they were changing prices in the store because inflation was just going nuts. In the 70s, when I was there and found my wife, it was basically two U.S. dollars to one of their dollars. And before this was canceled, this was basically one U.S. dollar to 100 trillion of their dollars. So you've got to be wise in seeing justice carried about. And God has to be the one that helps. Otherwise, you just create more mess. You may think you have all the answers for Washington, but trust me, you don't. If you were there, you might make things even worse. They need God. That's why we're to pray for those that rule over us. Verse 9, the Lord says, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He was as lost as a criminal in prison. He was lost. And the Lord's visit to his house led to his salvation. Zacchaeus wasn't happy with ill-gotten gain. Why did he go out of his way to climb a tree, a grown man climbing in a tree to get a peek at somebody? In his heart, he knew there was something more. He had tried riches, and it didn't meet his heart's needs. That's why he was willing to give half of it away and plus restore those four times what he had taken from them. Verse 11, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Those that recognized him as a Messiah thought, this is it, man. The Romans are out of here. Jesus is going to show his power. I know he can do it. I saw him heal the lame, the blind, and resurrect the dead. Man, Caesar's going to be history. And the Lord tells this parable. They needed to slow down and understand my kingdom is not of this world. It operates differently. And so in describing this kingdom, he says in verse 12, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. Now, it's my understanding that a mina was equivalent to three months' wages. So he called ten servants and gave them stewardship or responsibility over a mina each. They were already his employees, already his servants. Each of them was given responsibility over a sum of money worth three months' wages to do business with them. And he said to them, do business till I come. I think the old King James says, occupy until I come. So here's a nobleman. He's about to leave to go receive a kingdom. He says, you guys stay busy with this investment until I come back. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Now this story he's telling them is similar to the story of their culture, because they had had Roman procurators, some of whom wanted to become kings, and you couldn't become a king as a procurator. So glad I'm able to say that, procurator. The early service I kept saying procreator. A Roman procurator 
had to appear before the Roman citizen, the Roman Senate. Shouldn't have bragged. <laughs> the Roman Senate Senate to appeal to see if he could become a king. Herod the Great did that and became a king. He was a procurator who became a king. Two other leaders, one of whom was Archilles and another one who was a relative of Herod, attempted it. Both cases, citizens of Israel went and appealed, don't make them king, and here's why. And two of these cases, Archilles and a descendant of Herod, the Roman Senate ruled against making them kings. In fact, one of them lost his procuratorship and got shipped off to Spain. And so here in this parable, here's a nobleman who's going to leave and receive a kingdom, and here's a citizenry who don't want him to be their king. So in the parable, two kinds of people, citizens that don't want him to be their king and servants with whom he's entrusted a mina. Okay, with that being said, and so it was, verse 15, that when he returned, can we say when? When he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. So three months' wages had become two and a half years' wages, thirty months' wages. Your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in very little, have authority or become procurator over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Your three months' wages has become 15 months' worth of wages. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. So they were rewarded for prospering. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect where you did not deposit. And reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Now, in Matthew 25 is another parable called the parable of the talents. A talent is worth like 10,000 days' wages. It was just huge. And one was given 10 talents, another servant was given five, and another servant was given one. And the servant given one talent buried his talent. And the Lord called him wicked, lazy, and unprofitable. Seems kind of cruel. The guy didn't lose his talent, right? But keep in mind, he was his employee. What was he doing while he was gone? Here in this, this wicked, lazy, unprofitable servant was entrusted with three months' worth of wages, three months' worth of money to do business with, and he did nothing but tie it up in a hanky. And who knows what happened to the other seven, what they did. Point is, those who were faithful were rewarded, and he who was not lost what he had. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. You know, like this isn't fair. But why isn't it fair? The guy worked hard, 
turn one mina into ten mina. Proved himself trustworthy. Give him this other mina, he's going to be just as trustworthy with that. But our brains, we're basically communist as fleshly people. That's why it's so popular in countries that haven't experienced it. We think we can create fairness based on just redistributing wealth. And I'm telling you, fairness will do nothing but cause wicked people to gain the upper hand. It's good stewardship that brings blessing. Good stewardship. You penalize somebody's hard work, you're going to hurt those that don't work hard anyway in the long run. Verse 26, For I say to you that everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, that is, he who's not faithful, even what he has will be taken away from him. And then he deals with the citizens that didn't want him to be king. Verse 27, But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Judgment day is coming. And those who will not recognize the Lord's lordship will be dealt with. Thank God today is a day of salvation. And we pray. Lord, I ask you to speak to us today from your word. Give us hearts to align ourselves with your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last Sunday, we spoke on the subject. We're in a series called You Are, declaring who we are. And we saw last Sunday that we are God's steward. And just in case you weren't here and missed it, or you were here and you think it didn't apply to you because you don't think you're one of the holy men, it did apply to you. And so today we're going to speak on the subject, you are God's steward too. Tell your neighbor that. He's entrusted us all with blessings for us to be faithful with. Stewardship is a term that I think sounds quite strange, like it's someone serving passengers some peanuts on a plane after demonstrating how the oxygen masks will hang. But it really means what you do with what you gain. Everything belongs to God. We don't really own a thing. But we're his stewards here on earth, so he lets us hold his change. He doesn't care if we win, just how we play the game. And soon we must explain how we spent his dough today. You can tell a topic's touchy by the way people behave. Pastor mentioned stewardship, and you can hear the crickets play. Good stewardship depends on how well you give away what you've been blessed with to bless others in a similar way. Whether you make top pay or minimum wage, the widow's mite was preferred to what the rich man gave. It can be tough giving up what we work for every day, but God loves a cheerful giver, and it's all his anyway. So if you're the type of fellow with a profit motive brain, giving 10% of your income probably seems insane. And money for missionaries might as well be flushed in drains. If that's the case, you need to take stewardship class again. Okay, thank you. We will. We saw last Sunday that a steward is one who is delegated to manage property or other affairs for someone else. If you're a property manager or a project supervisor, you are a steward. You have been entrusted with something to be faithful in. It's a caretaker, an officer, a representative. A steward can be a guardian. You're raising someone else's child. You're a steward of that child. You carry responsibility as a guardian to see that child reach adulthood. An overseer is a steward. According to Titus, an elder in a church is a steward. An entrusted servant is a steward, as is the case 
in today's parable. The foundation of stewardship rests on several things. One is, first of all, it all begins with God. He's a source of all good things. If you're a logical thinker, just to say that may just kind of go over your head. Yeah, right. I work to have what I have. But let's think now. Who gave you the ability to work? Who gave you the ability to learn? Who gave you the relationships that you have? Who raised you? Who brought you into the world and nourished you when you were helpless? And who raised them? And who raised them? And how did prosperity come to your family? What happened? And if you know very much about your family tree, you'll see where God protected here and God intervened here and here was somebody that was healed or here was a miracle. And you keep chasing history back. Eventually, you'll fall asleep, but you'll wind up at Noah and go on beyond him. You've got the scriptures to tell what all happened. It all goes back to God. Everything comes from him. We are blessed to be a blessing. We're blessed to bless. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. We are commissioned. He's been given us a mission. I forgot to mention something back with number one. In Deuteronomy 8.18, God was speaking through Moses to the children of Israel whom he had led out of slavery. And he was leading them toward the promised land. And he told them, I'm going to give you power to get wealth to establish my covenant in the land. What was the covenant? The covenant was the promise to bless Abraham and his descendants. The promise to make them a blessing to the world. So he's going to give them power to get wealth. God's blessing comes from the power that he gives us to get wealth. It can come by miracle, but that is out of the norm. Normally, it's going to be through the work of your hands that God has blessed. He gives the power to get wealth. All right. We're blessed to blessed. We are commissioned with a mission. We've been given a stewardship over the Great Commission. What are we doing about this mission that Christ has called us to walk in? Number four, we are workers with God. We're his co-workers. We're his workmanship. This is a stewardship. What are we going to do with this assignment? And we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We are the servants in this parable. It's us. We're the employees of the noble king. And we have been given seed. 2 Corinthians 9.10 says that God gives bread to the eater and seed to the sower. So he blesses us with bread to eat, but he also blesses us with seed to sow for the purposes of his kingdom. Seed to sow for the purposes of investment and blessing to our families and others. And number seven, we own nothing in this temporal world permanently. Life is but a vapor. And when we leave, we leave it all behind. The pharaohs tried to take it with them. And people have plundered their graves and filled museums with their riches. So sandwiched in all of these is the two truths. God's a source of everything. He's the one that blesses us and enables us to get what we have. And we can't take anything that we have with us. So our ownership is temporary. Want to see a funny picture? You don't see this every day. 
You can't take it with you, but some people want to try. And one guy didn't want to take the U-Haul back. So he had himself a nice trailer made with nice wheels on his hearse. What makes us good stewards? 1 Corinthians 4.2 tells us what's required in a steward is to be faithful. Teddy Roosevelt said, it is better to be faithful than it is to be famous. He was famous, but he wanted to be faithful. Faithfulness in several things are so important. With little things, with money, with that which belongs to somebody else. Faithfulness with truth, not just the truth, but God's truth. And faithfulness in ministering in one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God with the gifts which he's given us, according to 1 Peter chapter 4. Still doing some reviews. What are we stewards over? We're stewards over our world. The first man and woman were given this blessing to have dominion on the earth and to subdue it. To have dominion over all of creation. To be stewards of the planet, of the garden. They were put in the garden to keep it. But somebody dropped the ball on their stewardship and let a snake get in there. And the rest of the story is what it is based on poor stewardship, I think. We're stewards over the gifts of the manifold grace of God. Stewards of the gifts that he gives us. We're stewards over our blessings, our sufficiency. We have all sufficiency in Christ. What are we going to do with that? Out of our sufficiency, we're able to help others because God's sufficiency is more than what we need. And we are stewards over our time. What do we do with the time that he's given us to live? Are you ready? Yeah. All right, 60-second spot on time. Can I have a clock in the corner? It's there. Thank you. Roll them. Rolling. Action. Okay, here's the deal. We all know that life is busy. There aren't enough hours in the day to do all the things that we want and need to do. In fact, you're probably thinking of all the things you need to do next week right now, wondering how you're going to squeeze it all in. But the fact is, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter how much is on your plate, we all have the same gift of 24 hours each day. It's 24 hours, 1,440 minutes, 86,400 seconds. All the money in the world won't let you buy one single second more than the next guy. And once that second is gone, it's gone forever. Look, there goes one right now. Another one, gone You'd think that we would judiciously use such a limited and valuable gift. You'd think that we would choose wisely how to spend, no, invest our time. But do we? Really? And after taking the time for eating and sleeping and all the other basic necessities, do we really use this gift the way we should? Think of all the great things you could do in 24 hours, all the lives you could touch, all the significant changes that could be made in your life and others. The fact is you could actually make a difference in this world in 24 hours or not. So how are you investing your time? Powerful thoughts. We are stewards over our life's seasons. Psalm 90.12, the psalmist said, Teach me to number my days that I may have a heart to know wisdom. We're not always going to be a kid. There comes a time when we need to grow up. And so a wise person leaves their adolescence behind. And moves on towards the destiny that we have as adults. And as adults, we know one day we're going to get old and feeble. And so wisdom tells us not to be obsessed with that, fearing that, but to do what we can to prepare. 
Teach me, Lord, to number my days that I may have a heart to know wisdom. A wise steward is one who takes care of opportunities. This parable today is about opportunities. Somebody giving you a mine of three months' wages is a tremendous opportunity to do something wise. Somebody giving you ten talents or five talents or one talent, 10,000 days' wages is a tremendous opportunity. What opportunities come your way? Maybe it's not been that much, but are you faithful with it? Yeah, but I could be, but if I could just win the lottery, then I could really be a good steward. Being a good steward has nothing to do with how rich we are. In fact, let's talk about the lottery for a minute. Three economics professors wrote a paper entitled The Ticket to Easy Street, Financial Consequences of Winning the Lottery. These professors obtained a list of winners for a Florida lotto that was known is known as the Fantasy Five. They compared those names to the Florida bankruptcy records to see how many winners filed for bankruptcy and when. In the first couple years after winning a jackpot, people who won smaller amounts of lottery winnings were more likely to file bankruptcy than people who won larger amounts. However, after three years, large lottery winners were more likely to file for bankruptcy than small lottery winners. Financial consultant Don McNay concludes winning the lottery did not help people increase their net worth. They needed to set goals and an understanding of finances to make their lives better. It appears that these lottery winners did not have those fundamental tools. If you're not faithful in what is little, you won't be faithful in what is much. If you can't run with the footman, how can you run with the horseman? If things are this way when the wood is green, how are they going to be when it's dry? Don't daydream about a better day. Take care of business today. In the parable of the talents, did the guy with one talent get jealous over the guy that had ten, thinking, well, he doesn't trust me. I'm just going to bury it. I don't know. Don't want to read too much into the parable. The point is, what do you have? What is in your hand? It was a man named Moses who had lost it all. and All he had was a job to take care of another man's sheep and a stick in his hand. And when he made excuses to the Lord for the calling to set people free from slavery, the Lord asked him one question. What is in your hand? A rod. Throw it down. What is the Lord giving you to be faithful with? Be faithful with that. We're stewards over our potential. There's people that have great potential that aren't walking in their potentiality. public speaker that I greatly admired was from the Bahamas, a man named Miles Monroe. And there was a plane crash a couple weeks ago, and he, he passed on. Everybody on the plane, gone. They hit a construction crane flying into the airport at Freeport, Bahamas. And one of my favorite quotes from him, you pardon me as I imitate a Bahamian accent, but this is one of my favorite Quotes from him. He said, The richest place in all the world is the graveyard. For underneath the surface of that soil lies untapped potential, never to be mined by anyone again. Wow. What untapped potential do we have that we have been given to be a steward over? Don't squander it. 
If you're young, don't waste your youth. If you're old, don't waste your wisdom. Walk in the potential God has given you and be a good steward over it. Jeremiah 29, 11, God says his will is to give us a future and a hope. We're stewards over our families. Ephesians 5 talks about husbands being called to relate to their wives like Christ relates to the church and lay down his life for her. And wives relating to their husbands like Christ is related to by the church. Loved by the church. How many love Jesus? That's how wives are to relate to their husbands. How many recognize Jesus paid a price for us? That's how husbands are to love their wives. And chapter 6 begins with children are called to honor their parents so that things will go well with you. One of the verses says that you'll live a long life by honoring your parents. Years ago, we had a tragedy in our congregation. One of our teenagers died in a car wreck. He was driving down a road. His parents told him not to drive on. He did it anyway and got killed. Does that mean it's guaranteed that if you drive down a road, your parents tell you not to drive on, that you're going to die? No. But it increases the risk of dying. Honor your father and mother. Even as an adult, we're called to honor our parents. God blesses us. There's four ways that he blesses us. He blesses us with miracles. The reason it's a miracle is it's outside the norm. That's not normally the way it is. He blesses the work of our hands. He gives us the power to get wealth. He blesses our investments, which is what these parables are about, of the talents and of the minas. And he blesses us with inheritance. You dishonor your elderly parents. You are increasing the risk of chopping off a source of God's blessing in your life. Well, they're useless. I don't need them. Honor your father and mother. Jesus told the Pharisees who were dishonoring their parents that they were making the word of God of no effect. He takes these matters to heart. They're very important to him. So let's look at these things. We're stewards of all this stuff. This is our life. This is us. Nine things. But there's a tenth thing that we all have stewardship over in one way or the other, and it has to do with our church. Our church, or whatever church you're part of, is is called to be an expression of the church. The church of Jesus Christ that inhabits time and space that began ten days after his ascension. His church. And we have a stewardship there. We have ministries. We have gifts that we have that can help further the cause of Christ through that church. The scriptures talk about a thing called the tithe. Tithes and offerings. Giving as he's prospered you. Giving cheerfully towards his purposes. Watch this. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there might be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing 
there will not be room enough to receive it. I will rebuke the defiler for your sake, and all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful life. Acts 4.32 talks about a time in the first church when no one lacked. They were all in unity, all in accord. They all gave sacrificially. Not equal amounts, but equal sacrifice. That is, in efforts to help. Talking about the potential of the church, it lies in our potential. and It lies in our obedience. How does one tithe? You tithe by putting God first. So, I have a two-step plan for becoming a tither. Number one, put God first. When it's time to pay bills, give God a gift first. And then look at how you're going to deal with everything else. Don't leave Him to the end. He's first. Jesus first. We have it on our side. And then you start doing that, make that part of your lifestyle, then work on increasing it to 10%. And then the day will come when you're no longer encumbered by that, but you give even beyond that. If it wasn't for the tithe, people wouldn't give anything. And look at what the great things the church is doing with only 2% people tithing in the world. I think our congregation is much better than that. But the point is, we have potential that we don't know yet. So that's one of the reasons why we're talking about stewardship. Stewardship applies to our whole life. This isn't just about the church. This is about the purposes of God in our lives beyond the walls of a specific place. That was all the introduction. Now, briefly, here's the sermon. It's a short one. Are you a good steward? Ask yourself that. Am I a good steward? Can we say that? According to estimates reported in the Journal of State Taxation, the typical American home has an average of $300 in unused or unredeemed gift cards. These cards are often misplaced, accidentally thrown out, or expired, or partially redeemed. Between 2005 and 2011, it was estimated by experts that over $40 billion in gift cards went unused. Are you a good steward of your blessings? This parable is a description of how Christ's kingdom was and is going to be operating. This isn't just a cute bedtime story. This is one of the keys to how this thing God has going in the earth operates. Because he was near Jerusalem, because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately, he tells this story. Because it wasn't going to appear immediately. In the meantime, there's tasks that were going to be given. And we're called to occupy till he comes. Number two, we are entrusted with blessings that are ours to be stewards over until the Lord returns. Do business till I come. Occupy till I come. A few years ago, some misleading preacher predicted that the Lord was coming sometime in October. People that believed him became very unwise stewards and regret it today. They went on vacations they couldn't afford, borrowed money, charged up all their credit cards, gone all over the world seeing all the sights. You know, I want to see the Grand Canyon before this place burns up. 
They were not occupying until the Lord comes. If he was coming in October, what are we supposed to do? Go on vacation and squander it all on ourselves? Vacations have their place. They replenish us. They strengthen us to be wise stewards, to go at it again. But to spend the last days before the Lord's return on self-centered stuff, that's not what this parable is saying. Number three, we are going to be held accountable by him for what we have been entrusted with. The king came back. And one day the Lord is coming back to receive for him a bride without spot or wrinkle who has been prosperous. By prosperous, I'm not meaning money per se. I'm meaning fruitful in his purposes. Number four, faithfulness and stewardship is proportionate to the Lord's increase of our authority. Our being faithful with what he has given us, the things we looked at earlier, those ten things, leads to reward of authority in the future kingdom. Unfaithfulness and stewardship resorts in the Lord's decrease of our authority. You see that in the parable. Number six, refusal to recognize Christ's authority over us will ultimately lead to his judgment. The citizens in that story that did not want him to be their king are ultimately going to be judged. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day to recognize the Lord's lordship over your life. May as well recognize it and accept it and allow his will to rule and reign in your life. Number seven, genuine recognition of his authority leads to real repentance and restitution where we were not good stewards. We're ending where we began with Zacchaeus, who was a terrible steward even though he was rich. He was given authority and squandered it, abused it, hurt people. But through the Lord's revelation in his life and his revelation of the Lord's lordship, look, Lord, I'm going to make restitution. Did the Lord tell him to do that? I don't know. But I believe the Lord communicated his love to him first and a response of Zacchaeus' heart was to begin to make things right. I know sometimes sins can be so far in the past or can be such a nature you can't make restitution. But if you can, you need to make things right. If you're driving a car you didn't pay for, you need to take it back. And I tell you, do, don't tell them you go to church here. <laughs> Number eight, the Lord restores an unfaithful steward. Salvation came to the house of Zacchaeus. And I, I end with this. Because a sermon on stewardship can lead people to feel condemned. Maybe you didn't serve the Lord in your younger years. Or maybe, maybe you let an opportunity pass you by. Or maybe you wasted a lottery winnings. Or wasted money on lottery losses. Or whatever happened, happened. But like Zacchaeus, the Lord can come to your house through His Spirit, through that river we opened the service with today. Asking Him to come in. And his, his will can be made known to you and you can begin to be restored and become that steward God has called you to be. Can we bow our heads? If you, like Zacchaeus, want to recognize Jesus as Lord today over your life, as a source of wisdom with your future, could you just raise your hand? You'd like 
the Lord to be your source of wisdom, to be your Lord, your Savior. Lord, you see these hands. I pray, Lord, that your revelation of wisdom for each person, Lord, make this word very pertinent to each person as to what they're to do next in light of the truth that they've heard. In Jesus' name, we give you all the glory and the praise. And Lord, I pray for those that have been wise stewards. I pray, Lord, that their faith would be strengthened, that they not grow weary in well-doing, but, Lord, that they would be encouraged. And I pray, Lord, for those of us that have been foolish stewards, I pray, Lord, we would glean wisdom from those who are wise stewards, that we would pursue a mentor, that we would pursue someone with gray hair that has been there before us, that can give us insights that we need to continue to live life in the calling that you've given us. That one day, Lord, we want to hear you say, Well done, good and faithful servant. All to Jesus Thanksgiving season, Lord, that we would not waste opportunities.